listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your guitar scientist with over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars. This is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, and guitar opinions. Sitting beside me is my lovely wife and co-host, Melissa. This is a question and answer episode where we will respond to listener-submitted emails. I will read the questions and Eric will try to answer them. Yeah, we've got a lot of good questions. Questions about tele pickups, questions about uh, baritones and six-string basses, you know. You mean like a guitar? The, well, like the bass six. I know, it's a different thing, I guess. Oh. Right? No, I don't guess. I mean, I, I'm just saying it's a different thing. Uh, questions about super glue, uh, when you put in frets, all kinds of good questions. We've got a call, too. We'll take a call. Sweet. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, wh- what's on your bench? Uh, currently, I'm working on a early 70s Gibson Hummingbird that needs a pretty big overhaul. Oh. Pretty big restoration. Like a neck reset? type of thing neck reset i'm making a new bridge for it somebody um somebody thinned down the bridge a lot uh-huh. sanded it down so i had to make a new bridge you know what else they did uh they sanded down the bridge so far that they needed to deepen the saddle slot uh-huh. and so they just took like a tiny flathead screwdriver and just gouged out the saddle oh, slot no went all the way through the bridge oh no into the top and there's like a, a trough. Is it through saddle. the top? Well, it's not all the way through the top, but there's a there's like a saddle slot in the top wow. where the saddle was going through the bridge into the into the spruce. Ouch! I know. As some people, I, you just wonder what they were thinking. Well, and that's how is, I would fix it. This I'm not super impressed with Gibson on this one either. I'm looking inside this guitar, and um, almost every brace is loose on the end because uh, they didn't extend the the braces all the way to the end, the edges of the guitars. The, the braces, like, stop like a, like a eighth of an inch shy of where they should, like shy of the kerfing. Weird. I know. I, I'm looking at this going, God, did they do this a lot? Because this is really... Well, aren't they... Factory-made guitars, shouldn't they all be made the same? Yeah, well, one one would think. <laughs> that I don't they, understand. You know, for a, a factory Gibson, and I'm talking about old-time, old-days Gibson. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, 80s and forward. I'm talking yeah. about 70s and back. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of inconsistencies. Just really inconsistent stuff. You'll see... I mean, I've seen factory Gibsons with two different kinds of kerfing on the inside. Wow. Yeah, that don't match up at all. And you look at, at first you look at it and go, what is this, some kind of repair? And no, it left the factory that way, like two different sizes of internal kerfing. So they were still handmade, even though they they were were, factory made. Yeah, maybe like sometimes the power went out and they would just make guitars in the dark. (laughs) I don't know what they were doing. (laughs) You see crazy things on old Gibsons. The the craftsmanship is not really, I mean, it's not. Don't get us sued Yeah, here. it's not up to, uh, yeah, don't sue me, 1960 Gibson. 
Um, you know, Martins, on the other hand, you look inside an old Martin, and oh, that's pretty clean work. But Gibson, a lot closer to harmony. You know, a lot of a lot of glue all over the place on the inside, and just kind of random, just whatever that you know. It seems like you'd you, maybe there's just end of day instruments where they would just kind of sweep up the floor and make a make a guitar with stuff that that ended up in the dustpan. I don't know. Interesting mm. stuff. Mm. I mean, I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I love vintage Gibsons, and they sound great. And there are a lot of them that are super well made. You know, they are well made. They're good guitars. But you just all I'm saying is that you see oddball uh, guitars and strange things that don't really don't really always make sense. Hmm. Anyhow, that's what's on my bench. It's a, Early 70s, Gibson Hummingbird that I'm doing some restoration on. Cool. I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff. I just did a, I just did a, uh, I had to press the neck and do a fret level on a, on a modern Gibson, a Keb Mo signature model. Hmm. Yeah, that was kind of cool. I've never seen one of those. That's a, that was a nice guitar. Cool. Uh, have we given a final update on that Esquire you were restoring? That's what I was just going to do. So I have officially finished the Esquire. The 1950 Esquire restoration is done and back in the hands of the gentleman who owns it. And he was very happy with the work. And I posted a lot of guitars on Instagram. If you want to see, uh, he means a lot of pictures. What did I say? You said a lot of guitars. I, sometimes the words don't make it to my mouth. They're in my brain, but they don't make it to my mouth. He posted a lot of pictures of <clears> the guitar. I posted a lot of pictures of the restoration before and after on my Instagram. If you haven't seen that, you can go and peruse and browse the various pictures I posted on Instagram if you're curious to see that. That's a very rare guitar. 1950 was really... The first production year for Fender, they did have some prototype stuff in in the late forties, and they were making things like, you know, lap steels and amps. And then fifty is when they started doing electric guitars, and the Esquire really is the first model. Cool. Uh, they had single pickup and two pickup Esquires, and then in the fall of nineteen fifty, they decided to rename. They they decided to give the two pickup model a new name, the Broadcaster. Right. So you do have uh, the Esquire basically is Fender's first electric guitar. And uh, that is a rare guitar. There aren't that many 1950 Esquires. There's probably, there's more 1950 Broadcasters, quite a few more. The Esquire is a a single pickup 1950 Esquire is pretty rare. So I was really honored to work on that guitar and restore it. And it's all done. It turned out great. And everybody's happy. Cool. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of early 50s Fender guitars, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if we've mentioned, I did finish those replicas I was working on. And they turned out great. Oh, the strap. Yeah, the, the strap. Early, the early Fender strap replica. Right. So um, up for sale on both my Etsy and my website, uh, malcoleather.com, are early 50s Fender strap replicas. Those are great. And I think they turned out cool. I know. I want you to make me one. No. Uh, sure. I'm going to have to actually go to her website and yeah. make an order. Can yeah. you believe this? It's all the same money. I, mean, I know. You'll have to pay for it, but it's my money anyway. I know, but she wouldn't make me one unless I did that. You got to get in line, man. If you order one of those, be forewarned. The vintage length is so short, it's basically unusable. The only reason you would buy the vintage length is be- is because you, you're 3 foot 10 or you really, really, really want an exact replica of the original strap yeah so on my website and on my etsy i have two length options i have vintage length and i have modern length and the modern length is about 10 inches longer than the vintage length 10 inches yeah 
And that's still too short for a lot of people. And I I can do custom lengths too. So just, yeah. just email me if just, that. If, if you're going to use it, get the modern length. Yeah. Get the one that works for you that yeah. will fit you. Uh, anyway, should we get to some questions? You bet. We do have one call that we can play here if I can uh, get to it. Let's take a call. This is uh, hot off of the Fret Files hotline. Hey, Eric and Melissa. This is Sean from Allentown. Uh, haven't called in a while, but life's been a little crazy. I'm sure you understand how that goes. But anyway, uh, got a bit more of a comment than a question, kind of a comment of affirmation. You had a comment on the last episode about safety post guitar tuners and I just wanted to, you know, verify that I also love them. My main guitar is a Telecaster Deluxe reissue that has those, and it's the first and the only guitar that I've had that has them, and by far they're my preferred tuning peg. And I just agree that they should be far more popular, far more widespread than they are. I've talked to multiple guitarists. And they all say that they love them. I've heard guitarists on YouTube say that they're their favorite type of uh, tuning peg. And you would think that they would be far more widespread, far more popular. Um, and I just, and, and not only that, they're hard to find just in general. Like you can't just go and buy a set of tuners. There's only like one or two brands that carry them and they all look like super old fashioned. I mean, unless you know of another uh brand or some way to find find them where they're a little more readily available or have like a modern uh mounting if you know some help a brother out you know um but i will say most recently guild guitars just released a high end 12 string that has those split post tuning pegs and i saw that and i immediately thought that is perhaps the most genius application of those tuning pigs I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's just absolutely brilliant. But yeah, I, I love them too. There should be more of them in the world. Just thought I'd share my thoughts on that because I felt a little vindicated on that episode. So yeah, thanks again for everything that you do. Love what you're doing. You're doing amazing work. Keep it up. I'll talk to you again sometime later. Right on. Bye. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm with you. I like the safety post tuners, and it's it's just not an option. If you go to put, if you want to put Grovers or some you know modern tuning peg on your guitar, uh, it's just not the option's just not available. So those are the ones that have the hole in the center that you have to cut the string to length and then put them. Yep, you stick the tuner straight down into the hole and then bend it over mm-hmm. to wrap it on. I yeah, see. so. Uh, I like those too. I mean, that's 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 my preferred tuner, and it's absolutely um, associated with the Cluson style tuners. That's hmm. that's almost that's almost the only time you see them is on Clusons or Cluson style copies. Right. Yeah. Uh, the reason what came into my mind when he was talking about why the reason why they're not more popular, maybe this is a theory is that you need a tool to use them. And, yeah. you know, most guitar pl- well, m- most, like, layman guitar players, they just leave their strings long on the end of their tuners and they flop around. A lot of around. them do. You know what I mean? Yeah, technically, you need a tool to install tuners anyway, or to install your strings anyway. Right. But, uh, but a lot of people don't clip those strings. Right. And, and that's all I'm saying is <clears throat> maybe maybe that's why. I get people occasionally will, I'll work on their guitar and they'll say, hey, when you install my strings, don't clip the ends. Why? I don't, help me God, I have no idea why. And I say, um, no. <laughs> my dad, when I was a kid, would leave him long and he would get up on stage and he'd be singing and playing guitar and in the string on his headstock, he'd have a lit cigarette. And so well, between songs, he could smoke his cigarette and then yeah. put it back. Yeah. That's a pretty good use. Yeah, it's cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, the safety post tuners, the only tuner that I um, know of that has, that I, I really love these tuners, it's Goto makes an open back. It's basically like a Clusen except no shell over it. 
And uh, I love those so much. And they are safety post. But again, that we're talking about an old-fashioned looking tuner there. So um, if you're averse to that, then I guess you're out of luck. But those are my favorites. I love those. I don't know the model of them. Maybe I should look it up. Uh, I'll do that as, as Melissa's reading the next oh, question. Okay. Okay. Right. Anyhow, thanks for the call, Sean. <clears throat> letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Hi, Melissa and Eric. Brandon from Indiana here. Brandon, we thought your name was Brandon. I'm sure that you get that a lot, but I'm sorry on the last episode. We didn't think anything. I don't think I thought it's possible to have a typo on your own name. Okay. Well, uh, Brannon, uh, thanks for taking my call last time about strat grounding. Super helpful. So the cornfield payphone was out of order this week, and I had to resort to email. I taped off the maple fretboard on my 1990s Mexican telly to level and crown the frets, and when I pulled off the blue painter's tape, it took big chunks of finish with it. Apparently, this is a thing. Lots of internet search search results about finished delamination on made-in-Mexico fender necks. So I used a combination of stronger tape and scraping to just get rid of the rest of the poly on the fretboard only. No signs of it coming off the back of the neck or the headstock. I guess time will tell. My question is, other than the fact that it is now a bit lighter in appearance than the rest of the neck, should I worry about the fretboard? Is it truly unfinished now, or would there be some kind of undercoat? Should I refinish it with true oil or something, or just don't worry about it and play the thing? Thanks. You guys are superstars. Thank you. Thank you very much. The the t- the tuners that I looked up are the Goto SE seven hundred ones. If you if you look at Allparts website, the Allparts gives everything their own number, and it's the TK seventy seven eighty six by Goto, and I love those tuners so much. They're great. Uh, they just seem like they stay tight, and they have the. Um, uh, safety post tuning shaft and yeah anyhow those are great tuners okie dokie brannon yeah yeah you're welcome thank yeah this the he he his last call was about the strat grounding so he said that was super super helpful so that's good yeah uh that night the 90s uh fender finishes they were experimenting with a water-based Lacquer, apparently, that's what I've heard. And when you go to mask off those necks, it will absolutely take big chunks of finish with it. So watch out for that. I, you know, hopefully, I mean, there's nothing I can do to help you now because the damage is done. But hopefully someone will listen to this and say, ah, I should watch out on my 90s telly, (laughs) on my 90s Mexi telly. Uh, But it's... um. Some of their their USA made ones too. In fact, I think I've seen it more often on '90s USA fenders than, wow. than Mexican ones. Yeah. So what should now that it's all all the polys off the fingerboard? What it, what does he do? Uh, so um, he used uh stronger tape and scraping to remove all the paint. Yep. Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's your call. If you want to finish it, you can. If you don't want to finish it, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not, it's not end grain. So it's okay to leave it unfinished. Um, it's going to get dirty and, and wear over time. But, uh, yeah, I would, if it were my guitar, I would spray a finish on it. Hmm. That's me. Um, you could oil it. That that wouldn't be bad. You know, true oil. Yeah. So, so now that the, the paint is off, it's just complete bare wood? There's nothing under there? Presumably? Well, yeah, as far as I know, I mean... It's possible that there's some kind of base coat undercoat sealer coat thing that didn't come off with the paint but i don't know for a fact if that's true or not i 
my guess is that that's bare wood now. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you could finish that. You could spray some finish on that. Um, that would not be that difficult to do. You know, you right. could, you can get, um, spray lacquer from Re Ranch or from Stuart McDonald and just do the fingerboard and polish it up. That, that wouldn't be too tough to do. You could sure do that. Anyhow, if you do that, um, maybe do some research before you do it and, and make sure you're doing it right. But, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of your call on that one because there's no right or wrong thing to do on that. Hmm. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Great job on the podcast. You two are doing amazing work. Eric, what would be your recommendation for a traditional telebridge pickup that can be played in a high-gain setting without the squeal? Would you dip one of your hand-wound telebridge pickups in wax to appease a customer? If not, I think I understand why, but I'm curious if it does truly affect the tone in a negative fashion. Thanks again, and keep up the great work, podcast, and real-life work. That's from Aaron. My old buddy Aaron. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, I've I've done that plenty of times. I'll wax pot um, one of my bridge pickups. You know, here's the deal. I'll break it down for you. I, I wax pot every bridge pickup that I make. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, the difference is that I don't pot the base plate to the pickup. I, I wax pot the pickup and then put the, the plate on the pickup. And as far as I understand, and I don't know for sure because I wasn't there, but as far as my understanding goes, that's how they did it in the early days of Fender. Because I have yet to find an old one that left the factory with the bridge plate potted to the base. Hmm. So, consequently, they're pretty microphonic. And uh, I like them that way. Now, if you're going to plug it into a rat pedal, you're going to have problems. It's just going to squeal like a stuck pig. So, um, but I've I've had plenty of customers who like my pickups who say can't do this because I use Marshall stacks or whatever. And so I will wax pot the base plate onto the rest of the pickup, and that solves the issue. Hmm. Yeah. So um, that's really. That's really the uh, the issue is the the base plate. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Eric and Melissa. Hello. I hope all is well in Idaho Falls. I have a question about baritone guitars and the Fender Bass Four. Is that four or six? Six. Six. I'm mm-hmm. really good at reading Roman numerals. Yeah. I have seen reissued Dan Electro baritone guitars around for years, and have recently seen the Squire reissues of the Bender. The Fender Bass 6. I am curious about these guitars. Is a baritone guitar the same thing as a Fender Bass 6? If not, what are the differences? What are the applications? And do you have experience with either the Squire or the Dan Electro models I have mentioned? Or any thoughts on these guitars in general? Please share if you do. Thanks again for the great show, and I hope your boys are happy and healthy. That's from Zach in Seattle. He says, P.S. The Eric Daw custom guitar is awesome. I played it at oh, a yeah. sh- I played it at a show in Wenatchee at Wally's House of Booze the day after I got it. Love the neck profile and the pickup sounds great. I got a lot of compliments on the strap too. Love you guys. Right on. Thanks, Zach. Yeah, I made a custom guitar for him. And I made a custom strap for him. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's pretty rad. So baritones and bass sixes. That's a great question. Uh so let me let me look at this real quick. Uh, the bass six, yeah. So baritone, yep. So uh, a baritone is basically a uh, its own thing. It's in between a bass and a guitar, and it's usually tuned B to B. Okay, and it's a little bit longer scale than a guitar, but not as long of a scale as a bass. So it is like a it's in between a bass and a guitar, right? Okay. So it's B tuned B to B. It's like a, it's a, it's tuned a fourth lower than a guitar. Mm-hmm. Right. A bass six 
is a true base, right? It's longer scale. It has real, you know, base strings. Uh, and uh, I think they have a 30-inch scale length. So it's kind of, it's a short, it's short scale for a bass, but it's an octave lower than a guitar. So all six strings are one octave lower uh, than a standard guitar. So it's tuned to E to E. Oh, okay. Right? So it's like a bass, it's like a short scale bass with two high strings. Interesting. Yeah. So different tunings, different scale lengths. They're both tuned low, um, but... A baritone is considered a guitar, basically a lower-tuned guitar, and a bass six is considered a bass. So that's, if that helps. What are their applications, he says? Well, I mean, you can use them for, you know, anything you want. I, uh... Would you play a baritone guitar like you would play a guitar or like you would play a bass? Or does it just depend on who the player is? Well, in my mind, you'd play it more like a guitar. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, in in some ways, it's kind of like... Have you ever played... A, you, well, you probably haven't. <laughs> but, you know, they have seven-string guitars with a low B. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like that except without that high string so it's just a it's just slightly lower than a than a guitar I, I there's a there's a whole movement of dudes who play like whatever weird metal low tuning metal where they go jun, 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 you know that yeah. music those guys all play baritones and low tuned guitars and yeah hmm. so that that's one application Cool. But it's also like if you're a Buck Owens fan. Really? There's a uh, a lot of baritone on on those records. They call it the Tic Tac bass. I don't know why. That's what they called it. But yeah, that's a baritone. Huh. Oh yeah. Cool. Thanks, Zach. Hi Eric and Melissa. It's Sang from Viacali. Does that sound right? Viacali Guitars with a couple of questions. Number one, like you, I am a diehard user of hot hide glue when I'm building my guitars. Good. But if I'm doing repair work and the gluing surfaces aren't pristine like they are with new construction, I was taught that tight bond has better gap filling properties and therefore might be preferable. For example, if you're re-gluing a bridge on an old acoustic and the soundboard is a bit rough or has a few missing splinters. Hey, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Can you comment on this scenario or in general about the gap filling properties of different glues? Mm -hmm. And number two, on the last episode, a couple of listeners asked about turning glossy finish into satin. You recommended gently sanding it with 800 or 1000 grit, then working your way up to 1500 grit. Any reason you wouldn't do it in the reverse order? My instinct would be to take a micro mesh set and start at the super fine 8000 grit and work through with a set getting coarser until I reached the desired level of satin. Looking forward to getting a Fret Files t-shirt once you print up the next batch. Will you be offering more colors? Cheers, Sang. Thanks, Sang. Probably not. How many colors do we have? I don't know. I don't know either. I appreciate everybody that's been ordering those. Uh, how many have we sold? A lot. Really? Probably 40 or so. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and yeah, I'm out of what most. What did we make, 50 of them or so? Yeah, I'm out of most of them. Uh, I think I have one small and three medium left oh, well, we'll in white to, and red. We'll make another batch soon. There's yeah. a few people that are waiting on yep. certain colors and sizes, I think. so. But I think black and uh, gray and blue are the only colors we'll be offering from here on out. Black, gray, and blue? Yeah. Nobody really wants white t-shirts anymore, no. do they? No. I've, I mean, I've sent out plenty, but most of them is just because I'm out of whatever color they wanted. I can understand that, you know. I mean, I have hot sauce stains on all my white t-shirts. Yep, me too. Hot hide glue. Yeah, speaking of hot... Hot hide glue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. You know, isn't it funny that this question should come in right now? Because the Gibson Hummingbird that I'm working on, the early '70s Gibson Hummingbird, has the same problem. It really 
had a pretty chewed up uh, top, but um, I don't know. I I feel funny about it. I feel funny about it, but I did use tight bond on that bridge reglue, you know? And it's not something that I recommend for every guitar. I really am a hot hide glue, die hard hot hide glue enthusiast. But uh, I'm totally and absolutely with with you on this one saying uh, that's my understanding too is that tight bond has much better gap filling properties. That surprises me. How come? Do you, I mean, what, what does it do that, that hide glue wouldn't do? Uh, I don't know how really to explain it. Um, but just from everything I've ever read uh-huh. on hide glue versus tight bond, uh, that's one of the things that's mentioned. Interesting. So, you know, it's, it's secondhand information. I really couldn't tell you, uh, I really couldn't tell you why one has better gap filling properties than the other, but. Uh, it's true. And the, the other reason I used tight bond on this guitar was uh, that it had, um, the bridge had been glued previously and uh, they used tight bond when they, when they glued it. So, uh, so I opted for tight bond on that, on that guitar. And it's not something that I normally do. I really think hide glue uh, is a better option in almost every case. But on some guitars, for some reasons, I do use tight bond for some things. So, yes, I'm a diehard hide glue enthusiast, but I don't use it 100% of the time. So Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and what about sanding to reach the level of satin? Should you do it from the finer grit to the more coarse? Hmm? Well, my problem with that is the coarse grit leaves more scratches. So I'm not sure why he's thinking of it. In my mind, you're thinking of it backwards. So I would start with, with like 800 grit and work to finer grits because, um, what you want is a smooth finish, not sanding scratches. Right. Right. Well, there you go, Sang. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. here from Emerald City Guitars, located in the heart of historic Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle, Washington. We are one of the world's premier vintage guitar shops, going strong for over 22 years. Specializing in the most rare, the funkiest, and most collectible vintage and pre-owned electric guitars, acoustic guitars, amplifiers, and more. We cater to anyone and everyone, from the guy next door to collectors and famous rock stars. Not only do we pay top dollar for used gear, we also offer trade-ins and consignment. We also have in-house repair and offer free appraisals. We have a variety of social media accounts that we post our goods daily. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at EC Guitars. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and see our daily episodes of the featured guitar pick of the day and reality of Emerald City Guitars shows. Give us a call to chat in person at 206-382-0231 and visit our online store at www.emeraldcityguitars.com. As you may already know, I make custom leather guitar straps. I hand make each strap from start to finish. I start with a hide of some of the finest vegetable tan leather on the market. Each hide is chosen for exceptional quality, color, and grain. If you haven't been to my website lately, you need to check it out. I've got a bunch of new strap designs and colors listed with more on the way. If you don't see the perfect strap, contact me with your custom order idea. Visit malcoleather.com to seek examples of custom orders I've done in the past. If you're a dealer, I offer competitive wholesale pricing. Email malcoleather at gmail.com for details. 
Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Etsy. If you're listening to this, you get 15% off when you enter code FRETFILES at checkout at melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. Well, I'm not just doing this show for my health. If you need some help with your guitar, if you have a repair you need some help with, if you have a pickup that needs to be rewound, anything at all guitar-related, just let me know. I would love to help you. People send me repairs from all over the states. Not everybody has a tech in their area. Not everybody has a luthier they can trust. Especially if it comes to something kind of complicated, if, if you're, you know, refretting a vintage guitar or or resetting the neck on an old Martin or something like that. Those are the kind of things you don't want to just trust to anybody. I would love to help you out. Let me know. You can contact me through my website, ericdaw.com, or you can give me a call at 208-557-4329. Eric and Melissa, I was visiting my dad over the weekend in Albuquerque, and he showed me a large top crack that had developed on his Martin D28V. He purchased the guitar new five years ago, and it's mostly just been sitting out on a stand with little use over the past two years. It's a pretty major crack that runs along the top near the center above the strap button right up to the bridge. I also noticed another more subtle crack from the other side of the bridge to the sound hole. In addition to this, it has a major case of fret sprout. Every fret extend, extends beyond the fretboard on the top and bottom of the neck. I'm wondering how common cracks and fret sprouts are in a dry climate like Albuquerque. Are new guitars more susceptible to this? I live in Seattle. Would the same thing happen here? I've heard of folks creating a controlled, humid environment for their guitars, but I didn't think it was all that necessary until now. He says he has a luthier that can do the work, but is it important to fix the crack right away? Thanks, Rob in Seattle. Cool. Thanks, Rob. Sorry about that guitar. Yeah. Uh, cracks and fret sprout are absolutely par for the course in a dry climate. You got to keep, especially an acoustic guitar, got to keep it humidified. And if you live in Albuquerque, you've got to keep that guitar humidified. Uh, New Mexico is not exactly a humid place. So, yes, that guitar cracked and got sharp frets because it dried out. And that's the bottom line. There you go. Um, so keep those guitars humidified. Uh, it's not as big of a problem in, you know, Rob's in Seattle. It's not really that as big of a problem in Seattle because um, it's basically a swamp, man. I was running a dehumidifier in my house when I lived in Seattle, you know, because yeah. I'm looking at the, I, I had a a hygrometer, which is a fancy word for a humidity gauge. Meter, gauge, yeah, on the wall, and I'm looking at it going, should it be 85% humidity in my house? So I ran a dehumidifier most of the time. Uh... So, yeah, in Seattle, you don't have to worry about it, really, Rob, but um, your dad in Albuquerque definitely needs a humidifier for that guitar. And um, is it important to fix that crack right away? Well, I don't think it's an emergency, like you need to do it, you know, yesterday, but absolutely sooner is better than later on that. Cool. Thanks, Rob. Hello, Melissa and Eric. Regarding the use of superglue on fret jobs, does Eric always use and recommend superglue? I have talked to two local techs who both seem to know what they are doing about a potential f a potential fret job on my 1994 Stratocaster. Just out of interest, I asked them what their process is and if they use superglue on fret jobs. One of them clearly said, I think superglue is only necessary for guitars with worn out fretboards. It should not be used or necessary on newer guitars. Plus, it increases the risks of damaging the fretboard if the frets need to be exchanged again in a few years time. The other said something along the lines of, 
Super glue is a really great help in the process. Plus, it prevents many problems later. And since it become, becomes nicely hard and brittle, it does not increase damage to the fretboard on future fret jobs if the f- tech knows what he is doing. I have a feeling what Eric's opinion might be on this, but I'd like to hear it. Keep up the great work, Axel. Thanks, Axel. Um, I would not say that either one of these guys is wrong. Uh, it's really just a difference of opinion, and there's really no... I mean, there. it's just kind of a stylistic difference. Me, I use super glue on almost every refret. Not every. I didn't say every. But I would say most. Probably not even almost every. I would say most. So more than half, mm-hmm. right? I use super glue. And one of the main reasons that I do it is because, uh, and, and it's a reason that neither one of these texts mentioned, but a fret that is glued into a neck doesn't have any wiggle to it, right? Right. So when you when you fret a note and pluck the string, the vibrations of that string aren't being absorbed by a microscopically loose fret. Okay? So the tighter and the more secure the frets are in the neck, the better tone you'll have and the better sustain you'll have. I'm sure some people listening to this podcast have had the experience of having a, a guitar that they love refretted and they got it back only to have uh, the tone killed the the fret job is expertly done there's no inconsistent heights you know there's nothing you can complain about about the fret job you're looking at it saying this is a perfect fret job why does it sound different it doesn't sound like it used to and that's because they yanked out the frets and put in new frets and that uh just widened out the slots just enough to where the frets aren't as connected to the fingerboard as they used to be. Super glue actually, in my experience, you take a, a stock guitar, refret it, and glue in the frets, and you'll actually have increased tone and sustain because the vibration of the string isn't being absorbed by a fret that doesn't have proper contact. So super glue, uh, I I use it on, like I say, most refrets because I think that it enhances tone and sustain. Now, if a tech knows what he's doing, he's not going to have problems pulling out the frets in the future. So I agree with the second guy. Cool. Thanks, Axel. Hey, Eric and Melissa, two Gibson-related questions this time. Number one, is the crowning process... The crowing process? Oh, crowning. Is the crowning process any different for Gibson's flat-top frets, a.k.a. school bus frets? I know some people like to round these frets, but I've grown used to them flat. Number two, my Les Paul plays great and was recently set up. However, I noticed the tailpiece is further from the body than I've seen on other guitars. Is there a way to lower the tailpiece closer to the body and make sure the guitar plays as good as it does now? Many thanks. Gustavo from Boston. Thank you, sir. Uh, So on crowning Gibson's flat top frets, uh, it's just a stylistic um, difference. You know, some people like to round them, some people like them flat. It's just, all it is, is how do you like them and get them done like that, you know? Um, if you want my opinion, personally, I don't like the flattened off frets. I don't like flat top frets that look like a school bus instead of a nice, crisp, round fret. And the reason being is that the f- the string doesn't doesn't have a really nice good center contact point so 
two things happen when you've got a flattened off fret. First thing is that the point of contact has moved from the center of the fret to the edge of the fret. Now we're talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny distance here, mm-hmm. but it's enough to throw off the intonation. It seems like the reason you wouldn't want a flat top fret is the same reason why you'd replace worn out frets, right? Yep. yep. Uh, the other problem is that without a clean point of contact, they tend, in my opinion, to have more fret buzz. Interesting. So, um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of school bus flat top frets, but uh, I know a lot of guys like them, so it's really, there's no right or wrong. That's just my opinion. And if you like them, rock and roll. You know, go to it. Uh, When you're talking about the tailpiece, I assume you're talking about the stop bar, not the bridge, right? Mm -hmm. On his Les Paul. And uh, a lot of guys like that thing low, and a lot of guys don't. My uh, criteria is, is the string clearing the edge of the tunematic? I raise the stop bar tailpiece until the string just clears the tunematic, because the tunematic, you've got your saddle in the middle, and then the bass... You know, the actual housing, the actual tunematic bridge itself has a a sharp corner down there. Uh-huh. And you don't want your string to hit the bridge. So I'll raise the tailpiece until the string clears. Now, if you've got plenty of clearance, you can drop it down and uh, have no problem. But a lot of players will drop that thing down all the way. And, you know, it's... Again, this is more stylistic stuff. It's not wrong to have it tightened down all the way, but it's not how I would set it up, and it's not how I would recommend you setting it up. But, yeah, you should be able to lower it without, you know, causing too many problems. Um, It may make the strings feel a little more stiff, but you can experiment with that. You know, one thing you could do would be to count the turns. So maybe give... Give each screw one full turn and then retune it and see how it feels. And if you don't like it, one full turn back up. There you go. Thanks, Gustavo. Hi, guys. Thanks for the podcast. I make a couple hundred bucks a month repairing guitars. It's a part-time gig. I retire in a few months and plan to work full-time in repairs and teaching. For you, did business randomly increase and become a full-time gig, or did you have to market yourself? What good practices in the shop can you suggest? Any other advice for working with clients? Bought a t-shirt. How many J's are there now? J from Fort Wayne. (laughs) How many J's are there now? I don't know. know. A lot. I don't know. They're not all the same J, you know. They, They might be. It's just one guy moving around the country. Yeah. Now I'm in Fort Wayne. Thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, I, you know, he wants to know, for you, did business randomly increase and become a full-time gig, or did you have to market yourself? Uh, I've been doing this a long time, okay? So I I think 25 years now. Uh, it certainly wasn't, I wasn't very busy way back in the early days. But you worked for a shop. You always worked for a shop. Almost always, yeah. There was a period of time in the 90s where I didn't, I worked, um, well, it was, it was, it it still was a shop, but I did, I I ran the shop. It was a record, it was basically a used record store that I also did repairs out of. So I was my own boss there. Uh, I worked for a very busy and a very high-end guitar store in Seattle for 15 years and I didn't have to market myself really because uh, that shop was really busy. I made, I certainly made a name for myself as people liked my work and spread the word and uh, things grew that way. So word of mouth is huge. When I moved and I moved back to Idaho two years ago now, um, basically I, I did market myself 
and you're listening to that marketing right now. I mean, this podcast is basically my, this, you know, like five years ago, I was thinking ahead, thinking, okay, I'm going to move, and so I need to establish some contact with my customers and, and maintain that contact, and so I started this podcast. Uh, and that has really helped, you know, I, I get I get repairs sent to me from all over the country from listeners to this podcast, and uh, that's helped. So uh, one thing I would recommend that you do is is advertise, and, and there's, a, there's a whole lot of free ways to advertise. I run a local ad here on my local Craigslist for guitar repair, and, th- and that certainly... Uh, that certainly works because, as you know, guitar players are scouring the internet for used gear all the time. So, and one of the ways they look for that is Craigslist. I've tried Facebook. Facebook, I don't think really helps at all. I think Facebook is over as far as marketing business goes. Yeah. Uh, Instagram, I would highly recommend. Yeah. You start an Instagram account and take pictures of your repairs before and after stuff. Um, just whatever random pictures of you working on stuff or whatever is on your bench. Try to post something every day and tag it with whatever guitar tags you're going to tag it with. And uh, ha- that will help. Yeah, the hashtags are super important on Instagram. And so is the, the quality of your your content. Uh, people told me for years, you got to get on Instagram. It's huge. And I said, whatever, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to be on Instagram because I, I, I'm never going to have a smartphone and just, just leave me alone about it. But I did start an Instagram. I still don't have a smartphone, but I did start an Instagram account and they were right. Everybody was right. It's huge. It's way more effective than Facebook as far as marketing yourself goes, uh, so I would highly recommend that. Craigslist and Instagram, those are two free ways to market yourself, and they're highly effective. Work with local music stores. That's another thing that I would recommend. Develop a relationship with these guys, preferably ones that don't have repair centers, right? Because right. They, they don't want competition. But you will find... Um, Here's something that I do, and this isn't something that I advertise. It's something. This isn't something that I say. I don't think I've ever said it on the podcast, but I offer uh, discounts to stores. So if a, if a retail store has me repair a guitar, their hourly rate is lower than a retail customer gets. Because the reason I do that is because, a, they're giving me more volume of repairs, so they get a bulk discount, and b, they want to mark it up. They want to mark up the work on their end for the customer. Right. So uh, that's one thing you might want to consider doing: work with whatever local stores you can and offer them a discount. So. There's some thoughts and some ideas for you. I hope that helps, Jay. Thank you. You mentioned that leaving a guitar on a stand at home is a bad idea because it can get knocked over for for many unexpected reasons. Leaving a guitar on a stand can be bad anywhere. Uh Uh-oh. I once played a show in a small theater. We got the stage set and everything ready for the show. Then we went to mind our own business somewhere. After a while, we heard some crashing noises from the stage. Uh Uh-oh. Somebody had left the loading dock door wide open, and when the doors in the back of the auditorium and the lobby all ended up being open at the same time, this allowed wind to blow through the building. The big backdrop curtain blew outward and knocked over a bunch of stuff, including my guitar. Nothing got outright broken, but the guitar got a big dent in it. That's from... Oh, that's from Jay. Another Jay. Another Jay. Oh, my goodness. It's the same Jay. No, it's a different Jay. Yeah, man. I hear you. Guitar stands. Yep. Soldering to the back of pots is a pain. Can you explain the soldering iron tips you use for typical guitar work? This may be part of my problem. 
Thanks, Justin. B.S. My Fret Files t-shirt looks nicer with a good coat of sawdust on it. Yeah, right on. <laughs> if you want to order, by the way, if you want to order a Fret Files t-shirt, you can go to fretfiles.com and order there, whatever we have left. And we'll be making more shirts soon. If you want to order a pack of stickers, same deal, fretfiles.com. And you can order some stickers there. We appreciate it. Soldering to the back of pots is a pain if you don't have the right soldering iron or the right tip. You need a heavy-duty soldering iron. Uh, your standard, like, pencil, you know, soldering iron it isn't going to cut it. Your, your standard, you know, 20-watt, whatever, Radio Shack soldering iron ain't going to cut it, my man. You need a serious flamethrowing soldering station, like a Weller or a, a Heiko. Does it literally throw flames? No, I'm saying that it's going to be a powerful soldering iron. Oh, okay. You need one that's... um. I don't know what I don't, I'm wonder I wonder how many watts mine is. I don't know. I don't really know. But yeah, those those like those little, you know, orange handled um pencil Right. I have two whatever, of them. Yeah. They that that's not enough to solder to the back of a of a pot. I feel like when I ordered them though, they were eighty watts. That seems like a lot. Really? I don't know. What, what do you use them for? I didn't even know you had any. Uh, to I burn my logo onto leather sometimes. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, the WE51 is what I have, I think. How many watts is it? But, well, we're going to find out. But it has an adjustable temperature control, a knob on there that you adjust. It goes from 350 degrees to 850 degrees. Whoa. Yeah. And it is... 50 watts. Okay, so I'm yeah. way off on mine. Yeah. Um, and when I go to solder on the back of a pot, I'll crank it up to 800, 850. And, uh, yeah, and I'll put flux on the pot, and uh, and that gets the job done. If, if you've got a low-wattage soldering iron, you're going to be sitting there all day, and all you'll ever do is just heat up the pot just enough that you get a little bit of solder to stick to it, and it won't be a good connection, and it'll be ugly. The problem is, with a large surface area like that, trying to solder to that much surface area, it acts as a heat sink, and it's just soaking up all the heat, and you're never going to get it hot enough with with a low-powered soldering iron. Uh to make that happen. So you want to use a chisel tip, uh, tip, a chisel tip, and a, a good high-powered uh, soldering iron, and make sure you keep that, keep your, keep your uh, soldering tip tinned and clean, and uh, you shouldn't have a problem. And that does it for this show. We have a special visitor here in the uh, podcast room. And uh, his name's Isaac. This is my five-year-old boy, and he's going to say hello. Say hi, Isaac. Hi. Should you be in bed right now? Yeah. Oh, but how come you got out of bed? I just wanted to see you guys. Oh. Thanks, is your brother sleeping? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say hi to everybody that listens to the podcast? What? There's, well, we're talking to people right now. Do you want to say hi, everybody? It's almost like talking on the phone. Say uh, say hi everybody. Hi everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. Uh, if you uh, want to participate in the show, you should do that by calling seven five seven. Oh wait, yeah, seven five seven 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 four eight four eight two. You can call or text that number, or you can go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and. Uh, submit your question or comment there thank you so much thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time good night
to see you who don't stop talking to me. I'll find you and pass you in the face.